if you're not a grade schooler and you are staying in here with us, you can turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you are a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, when you came in, there should have been a card that looks like this where you are seated. If there are things that we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. Uh, we don't think anyone should have to carry those burdens alone, but we'd love to carry them with you. Um, so on one side of that card is a place for prayer concerns. The other side of that card is just a place for guest information. If, there, if you'd like to leave a little information with us, we'll send you a little information about ourselves. We don't want to be invasive or intrusive. We're not going to show up on your doorstep at dinner time and expecting you to invite us in. Um, although if you did, I would come in and eat with you. Um, but uh, we just want to be able to answer any questions you might have about Redeemer and get you the information that you need. So if you felt one of those cards, there's a box at the kiosk in the back of the room there. You can drop that in there on your way out today. Um, and so we'd love to, to connect with you and be able to pray for you and with you. Uh, we find ourselves today in the third installment of a series of messages on the Ten Commandments from, the, from Exodus chapter 20. And it's worth reminding ourselves once again uh, that these commandments, God gives them to us, not to say if you will keep all of these commands, then I will accept you, then I will be gracious to you, then I will receive you, then I will deliver you. God says, no, I will deliver you. If you notice the pattern there in the, the gospel pattern, it's there in the book of Exodus, God comes to his people in Egypt, delivers them from bondage and slavery and captivity. He's, he brings them out of that and then he gives them the law to say, here's how you live as my people. Not if you live this way, you'll become my people, but now that you are my people, by my grace and out of my affection and love for you, here's now you, how you should live in freedom and fullness and enjoy the kind of life of flourishing that I intended for you. And so that's how we come to these commandments. And so we find ourselves in the second commandment this morning, um, and we're going to read Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. I think there's more than that that it's on the slides, Craig. I apologize, but we're going to read verses 4 to 6 together. In Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, Moses writes, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the second commandment. No graven images. And it's a commandment that's aimed at instructing the people of God on what it is to engage in true worship of God, right? So the people of God to engage in true worship of God. And so this morning what I want us to do as we work through this text together is to ask and answer these three questions. What is the command that we are given here? How do we break this command? And then how do we keep this command? Does that make sense? Pretty simple, right? What is the commandment? How do we break it? How do we keep it? So first things first, what is the commandment? The commandment that we're given here in the text is this, is that we cannot make an image of the invisible God. That we are prohibited from making any kind of likeness, any kind of image of the invisible God. Now when we come to this commandment, oftentimes, and I don't know about you, but for a very long time I thought, well the second commandment is just a restatement of the first commandment, right? You should have no other gods before me. 
And then you're not to make any images of this God that you're not to have any other gods before. So it's kind of a restatement or an expansion or, or, or an extension of the first commandment. But when in fact, the second commandment is actually a commandment in and of itself that reveals something to us about God and about ourselves as he prohibits us from making an image of the invisible God. And the types of images that God has in mind here are both material images, right? We're prohibited here from explicitly from creating a material image to represent God in our worship. And so we shouldn't create any kind of statue or any kind of idol or any kind of icon that would assist us in our worship of this invisible God. Right? No material images, but it also implicitly prohibits the creation of any mental images that, we might, that represent the version of the God that we worship. Right? So we don't create any material images to assist us in our worship, but nor do we create any mental images that represent to us this God that we are worshiping, that are not in alignment with who He is. Right? And so that's what this commandment is. Don't make an image of the invisible God. Let me see if I can just make it plain for you in this way. Right? My family is a fan of the television show American Ninja Warrior. Okay? So every summer whenever they come out with a new season, new episodes, I, I'm a big fan. Uh, my kids watch it for the first couple of episodes and they're like, they're doing the same thing over and over. Um, I, on the other hand, just kind of get sucked in. And so we watch American Ninja Warrior. We have over the course of the last several years. And we, so, so much so that we kind of feel like we know the, all the competitors by their first names, right? And so we can talk about all these people. We feel like they're part of our family, right? We just welcome them in. They come have dinner with us, that kind of thing. But there's one female competitor on the show, and her name is Jessie Graff. And she's this tall, lean uh, athlete who has... I think gone further or just about as far as any other female competitor on the show has made it. But Jesse Graff's day job is as a stunt double in Hollywood, right? And so as a stunt double in Hollywood, she stands in for all the other famous actresses who have in their contracts that their pretty faces cannot be distorted by any of the vehicle chases or uh, like dives or all kinds of like fight scenes right they they don't this is their money maker and so they can't mess up the money maker right so they have a stunt double who stands in for them in those action sequences so they do not get injured themselves right and what God is saying to us is this he says listen in 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 the Hollywood vernacular sometimes they're called stunties right stunt people stunties God says, don't have a stunty God. Don't have a stand-in for me. Whether it be any material image that you create or any mental image that you create that would stand in for me, that would represent me. And here's why he gives us this command. I, could, I, I, think, I think I see at least two reasons in the text. First of all, first of all, it incites God's jealousy. Having a stand-in representative of God incites his jealousy. Look at what he says in the text. He says, For I, the Lord your God, in verse 5, am a jealous God. 
He's a jealous God, and whenever we make a representation of him, whenever we have a material or mental image of him, when we have a stand-in for him, it incites his jealousy because these stand-ins that we create are always inadequate because they're trying to reduce the infinite God to a finite conception or a finite creation. This God who has no limits, it's putting boundaries on him. It's putting limitations on him and it's always reductionistic. It will be, always be inadequate because it, will try and take the, it cannot ever contain the majesty and the glory of this one infinite God. And so it incites his jealousy because it's not, can, it can never be a true representation of who he is. So it incites the jealousy of God for his people. Now, when we see the word jealousy, we're always we're 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 trained to think it's a bad thing, right? Because for us to be jealous of someone or something, right, is always treated as a negative uh, vice, not a virtue. And yet, when God's jealousy is spoken of throughout the Bible, He's never jealous of something or someone. Who does God have to be jealous of? No one, right? But He's jealous for. His people. He's not jealous of his people, but for them. In the same way that a loving spouse would be jealous for the affections of their, of their covenant partner. Right? Right? A loving spouse would be jealous for the affections of their covenant partner. They would want exclusive loyalty, exclusive affection, exclusive love, exclusive allegiance from their husband or from their wife. And when, when that is violated then what happens? It incites a jealousy, right? If somebody were to, were if, like if my wife and I were out walking in the mall and somebody came up and started trying to hit on my wife, right? <laughs> I, I, would, I would be jealous for her affection in that moment, right? And so I, I would step, step in and I would say something to this fine, upstanding citizen, Right? Because I'm jealous for her. And she's jealous for me, for our affection, for our love, loyalty, and allegiance. And listen, whenever we create a stand in God, it incites God's jealousy because He wants to be worshipped and known for who He is, not who we conceive Him to be. You with me? Right, the same would be true, right, if I were to go up, to, those of you who know my wife, we'll get this really quickly. If I were to go, if, I, if, if like my wife and I's anniversary is coming up on May 19th, May 19th, don't let me forget that, okay, May 19th, okay, and so on May 19th, my wife and I will celebrate 18 years of marriage. We were married on May 19th, 2001, right, yes, May 19th, 2001, <laughs> so we will celebrate 18 years of marriage, Okay? Now, what I've learned over those 18 years is that you have to buy cards to commemorate these moments, don't you? And so I go to the, go to the, go to the store and I'm perusing all of the, 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 you know, the anniversary cards and I find the perfect card, right? I look through 73 of them to find the perfect card. Okay? And I'm looking for the exact right sentiment expressed in the card, but that's not enough. I've learned this over the 18 years because I have to write my own sentiment in the card as well, don't I? Those of you men, like if you're not married, take notes, gentlemen. 
If you're young in marriage, take notes. You've got to write your own sentiment in the card, right? And so you've got to say things about your spouse and how you, you know, the deep love that you have. All, all those things. Pour out all the romantic stops there in the card. So if I were to go to the store, look through 73 cards, find the right card, begin to write my own sentiments in the card, and I would say, listen, I would begin to extol her excellencies, right? Praise her for all that she is. And I were to speak of her flaming red hair that glows as the sunset across the horizon cast its light over the clouds and I were to speak of her cute adorable freckles that dot her face right she's got one here on her nose and many on her cheeks and her porcelain skin that is light and fair and I was just extolling all of her excellencies and I were to seal it up right write her name on it with little hearts on the outside of the envelope and I were to slip it under her pillow and she would find that there in the morning when she woke up and she would open the card and she began to read it and she would as she read across the card with me just pouring out all of my sentiment and affection for her her face would not light up with a smile but she would light up with anger and disgust as she looked at to my eyes because my wife doesn't have red hair she doesn't have freckles on her face she doesn't have porcelain fair complexion she has an olive complexion with brown hair and no freckles right and so that would not honor her but it would incite her jealousy wouldn't it if I were extolling things about her that were not true of who she was See, this commandment is about God wanting to be known and worshipped for who He is. Not who we want Him to be, not who we think Him to be, not who we conceive Him to be, but who He is and as He's revealed Himself. So it would incite His jealousy. But second of all, listen, any image of God that we create not only incites His jealousy, but it ignores His image bearers. It ignores his image bearers. So in Genesis chapter 1, we find God saying that he has created humanity in his what? In his own image and in his own likeness. In Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God has already created image bearers for himself in creation. So we're not left to create images of God because he's already created images of himself. That he is, and, and he says, listen, it's every man, woman, and child. Right? So God has created us in his image and we're not to create anything in his image to represent him in our worship. And yet, listen, we do, and when we do, we ignore his image bearers. Because almost everywhere in the scriptures, when sins, horizontal sins, sins against our brothers and sisters, sins against other humanity are referenced, oftentimes they are done so in the context of idolatry as well. I give you two places, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In Ezekiel chapter 18, in verse 10, It says, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, 
who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abominations, lends at interest and takes profit, then shall he live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die and his blood shall be upon himself. You notice in that context, he's lending. He's taking bribes. This individual is robbing. He's oppressing the poor and the needy. Defiling his neighbor's life. Not restoring the pledge. He's doing all these things to his neighbors. And in the midst of all these horizontal sins, you find this, this instance where he says, and lifts up his eyes to the idols. If you fast forward and go into the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul writes about, before he writes about the fruit of the Spirit, he writes about the sins of the flesh, right? The works of the flesh. And in that he talks about, um, he talks about enmity and strife and jealousy and gossip and all these horizontal sins. But included in all those horizontal sins is idolatry. Why? Why does he, why is this association show up throughout the Bible? Kevin DeYoung, one pastor, said it this way. He said, idolatry diminishes God and diminishes us. Mistreating other people and worshiping idols have the same root. A violation of the divine image. In one case, we are looking for God's image where it doesn't exist in idolatry. And in the other case, we're ignoring God's image where it does exist. Sins against our neighbors. We are God's statues in the world, marking out the planet as His and His alone. He does not need our help in making more images. He asks for our witness. Asks for our witness. So listen, it ignores God's image bearers. It incites God to jealousy whenever we have a material or a mental image that represents Him as one that He is not, nor has He revealed Himself to be. But this is the inclination of the human heart in every human heart. We're inclined to either create a material or mental image to function as a stand-in for God, as a stunty for God. And listen, Israel did it on the heels of her deliverance. You remember the story? In Exodus, chapter, in Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 32, following God delivering his people in the teens, right? And then in the 20s, giving them the law. And then in Exodus chapter 30, they're all, uh, 32, they're all standing around looking at each other. It's like, where's Moses? This guy that you sent to lead us out of, out of, out of slavery. This guy that was going to be our, our media. Where's Mo- He's disappeared. And so they come to Aaron, the priest, and they say, Aaron, listen, bro, we don't know what happened to Moses. We think somebody got him in the back alley, all right? We don't know where he is. This is what they say to, Mo- to Aaron in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So no sooner does God deliver them and Moses goes up the mountain, 
to meet with God and the people come to Aaron and say, listen, we don't know what happened to him. Make us uh, uh, some images. Make us some statues. Make us some gods to worship. And then whenever Moses comes back down the mountain, God wants to destroy the people. Moses appeals to God on their behalf and he comes down and in Exodus 32, 21 and following, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? In other words, what were you thinking, Aaron? Right, what were you thinking? And then Aaron says, listen, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and this calf just popped out. Right? That's how, that's how he says it. And the calf just came out, right? I don't know how it happened. Well, earlier it says he took a graving tool and formed it and created the calf, right? He's, he's pretty imaginative trying to pass the buck. Because he didn't have the courage to stand up and say, no, God has already prohibited us from creating an image of himself, right? But this is the inclination of the human heart, not just theirs, but ours as well. Ours as well. And so how do we break? This is the command. God says, don't make an image of the invisible God, whether a material or mental image. How do we, how do we break this command? Right? Because you look, at, you look at other cultures across the globe and uh, you might see statues that they have erected to their gods. Right? But in many of our homes, we might not have statues erected to our God, but we still may not have material images, but we have mental ones. So how do we break this command? Let me tell you, perhaps, I'm going to give you one way we break it this morning. It's perhaps the most pervasive in our modern American context, and it's this. The way that we most frequently break this command is when we become God's editor. We become God's editor. Now listen, an editor, any author worth their weight has an editor, right? Worth their weight in anything. Has an editor. And their editor is going to proof their writings for things like grammatical errors, like punctuation errors, like stylistic adjustments that need to be made, perhaps even rewrite some of the content a little bit to make it more palatable and appealing to the audience that they're trying to reach, right? And there are times in which you and I, even as those who are on the backside of God delivering us from our own slavery and bondage to sin, can try to function as God's editors. And we do this when we edit aspects of God's nature and character to fit our desires or the desires of our culture. Let me say that again. The way we function as God's editor is when we edit aspects of God's nature or God's character to fit our own personal desires or the desires of the culture in which we live. And so we might edit the holiness of God. God, God, God yes, He's set apart and different, but he's, he's, He, he kind of is okay with whatever it is, that you, whatever path you would like to choose. Right? We edit God's holiness. Or on the other side, we edit God's mercy. We might edit the love of God or the justice of God. We might edit out the transcendence of God, that God is big and inexhaustible. Or we might edit out the eminence of God, that He's also near and personal. We might edit the sovereignty of God. Right? We, many of us are okay with God's sovereignty until something bad happens. And it's like, well, I don't know if God's sovereign anymore. Right? Or we edit out the compassion of God. 
Right? We try to edit things that disagree with our palates out of the Bible, out of God's nature, out of God's character. God can't be like this. God can't be like that. Right? And people hear certain teachings about God from the scriptures. They, push, they want to push back and say, well, God, I, I can never worship a God like that. I can never worship a God who says that. And they try to edit out and piecemeal together their own versions of God. Right? Some of you heard me use this illustration before. We try to create our own Stepford gods. Remember the, the Stepford Wives, the two movies that were made and the novel that was written, right? Where the husbands in Stepford, Connecticut, where they, they, they get together and they say, listen, we're tired of our wives contradicting us all the time. We're tired of them pushing back. We're tired of them arguing with us. And so what do they do? They decide to take their wives and make them into robots who would obey their every whim and every wish, right? And so while they're beautiful in appearance and subservient in disposition, always acquiescing to the request and the will of their husbands, right? They are not real women. You know what I'm saying? Right? They're not real women. They're robots. They're not, it's not a real relationship, right? Because they've edited out everything that does not agree with themselves from that relationship. And listen, this is how many within our day and time create for themselves their own mental image of God by editing out anything that disagrees with them. Everything that agrees with their own preferences and feelings God must be that way. Everything that disagrees with their own preferences and feelings, God cannot be that way. In fact, one author, Anne Lamott, said it this way. She said, you can safely assume you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And to say it positively, that God likes all the same people that you do. He likes all the same things you like, hates all the same things you hate. Likes all the same people you like, hates all the same people you hate. You have a God in your own image, a mental image of God. And see, we become God's editor sometimes by imagining Him in one of two ways. Some of us might imagine God as a warden in a prison. Right? Those raised in very moralistic, legalistic context. Might imagine God as a warden, right? And you can kind of get on God's good side by your good behavior there in, in, in prison, right? You can get first in the line to meals. You can get like a little extra commissary. You can get all kinds of things if you get on God's good side through good behavior. Or God might be a parole board, right? You come before God for parole and your sentence was 20 years, but you're going to get it reduced down to five because of your good behavior. And we see God as a warden, Others, on the flip side, who weren't raised in a very moralistic, legalistic type environment, they don't see God as a warden, they see God as a heavenly grandfather. You know the difference between a dad and a grandfather? A father and a grandfather, right? I've learned it over the course of the last 11 years, is that grandparents, they just want to be liked, right? And so they will give the kid anything they ask for. Anything. Right, here you go, Right? Kids three want to juggle knives. Let me get you some more out of, this, out of the drawer, right? The dad walks in like, what are you doing? Right? Because a father, a father oftentimes will correct and discipline because he knows that it's needed in the life of the child. Whereas a grandfather just wants to be liked. 
so often, and we envision God. I can remember my grandfather. I could never do anything wrong. He always just kind of rubbed my head and gave me a sucker, right? And we envision God. We have this mental image of God as a heavenly grandfather who's going to place his stamp of approval on anything that we want because he just wants us to like him. See, we have these mental images that he's a warden or he's a grandfather. And yet that's not how God reveals himself at all. He reveals himself in the scriptures as a father who's filled with compassion and correction. He doesn't wink at sin, nor does he despise the repentant sinner. See, those who came up in a moralistic, legalistic environment, whenever you sin, all of a sudden you just feel this weight of guilt that floods over your soul and you think that Jesus must not want anything to do with you any longer. And yet, if you read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 and following, where it says Jesus aware of, of, of this and, and the way people were engaging him and approaching him, he says, we withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's all speaking of Jesus. And then it says in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Listen, some of us in the room might be like bruised reeds or like smoldering wicks where we've just burned down to the very last bit of wax. We don't have a passion or a flame for God or we've been broken by our experiences in life, maybe through our own sins or the ways in which we've been sinned against. And yet the scriptures do not say that you should go cower and hide in a corner, but you should come to this God who will not break a bruised reed and will not snuff out a smoldering wick those of us came up in moralistic and legalistic settings need to hear that. And yet those who came up in very, very anything goes kinds of settings need to know that indeed God is a God that disciplines like a good father would discipline and correct his child out of love. That he will not rubber stamp anything that you want to get away with. Right? It's not either, it's not, it's, it, God says, listen, the mental images you have of me must be torn down. It must be torn down. That we cannot be God's editor. So if that's how we break the commandment, how do we keep it? How do we keep it? Let me give you two things as we close this morning. First of all, first of all, how do we keep this commandment? First, worship the only God-licensed image of himself. The only God licensed image of himself. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the neighborhood kid was down at our, on our street, uh, was down at our house playing. They, we, man, we've got like 20 kids up and down our street. And it's just like a mob, right? Every day after school, um, every weekend, right? Our trampoline in our backyard um, is that poor thing. It's only about a year and a half old, but there's like 17 kids on it trying to bounce. Some of you are like, that's a nightmare. I've never sent my kid to your house, right? It's a nightmare. And so they're all back there. And it's like as they bounce, the thing's kind of almost touching the ground, okay? And so there's just kids everywhere. But one of the kids who was over playing one day uh, had his sunglasses on. 
and he forgot his sunglasses at our house. So they were sitting up on our, our, on our little, the little bar area there uh, above the kitchen island. And so, um, he, you know, the mom said, hey, I think my son forgot his sunglasses at your house. I said, oh, yeah, let me go grab them. And I go in the bar, uh, grab them, and bring them out to her. And she said, you know, they, they kind of look like Oakleys, but they're Folkleys. You know what a Folkley is? It's a fake Oakley, okay? Oakley sunglasses are really expensive, Okay, and so this kid who is like nine years old probably doesn't need Oakley sunglasses, so he's got Folkley sunglasses, right? They look and maybe feel from a distance like Oakley's, but they are not Oakley's, okay? When you get up real close, you see the quality of construction is not the same. If you look through the lenses, you can see that the, 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 the clarity of the lenses is not the same. It's just not the same. They're a reproduction, right? They're knockoffs. Right? And so some of you ladies are like, yeah, I had a purse like that one time. Okay? So I couldn't afford Gucci. Right? So I got Uchi instead. Okay? And so the stitching's not the same in the purse. Okay? The zippers break after three weeks. Right? It doesn't hold together the same. The quality is not the same. Okay? And these, these re- reproductions of these... Uh, authentically licensed products, right? They are not licensed by the manufacturers. It's some other company somewhere else that's making these products and then shipping them out. They're not licensed by that brand or by that company. So they're not recognized as that brand. And listen, the same is true. God says there is one licensed image of myself. That I have ordained. There's one and only one. John speaks of it this way in John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John John the Baptist bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For in Him, in the Word made flesh, His, uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, for from His fullness we have all received glory and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. This Jesus Christ has made Him known. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And the author of Hebrews says it this way, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. See, throughout the New Testament, God says there's one licensed image of myself that is an exact representation of me, that is the exact imprint of my nature. That word in Hebrews literally means this. He's my stamp of approval. 
Right? In the same way that coinage is stamped with the image of the rulers back in Rome's day. That's the same word used there in the Greek text in Hebrews. That upon Jesus Christ, the man is stamped, is impressed, the imprint of the nature of God. That the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That he is the image of the invisible God. That he is the word made flesh. He's the only licensed image of God and He's the only one that we are to bend our knee to and bend our lives to. That we're to yield to Him. That we're to worship Him. We're to submit to Him. We're to honor Him. Right? And so the first thing, the way that we obey this command is, listen, not to construct for ourselves a mental image of what we think God is like or should be like or what we want Him to be like but rather to worship Him as He's revealed Himself through this only licensed image, Jesus Christ. And for some of us in the room, that may mean that we cross the line of faith for the first time. And then we say, listen, I'm going to stop coming to God and demanding that God be like something that He's not. But I want to know the true God, the real God. I want to get a hold of the God of majesty and glory, of mystery. I want to get a hold of the God of fire. I want to get a hold of the God of, of compassion, of love and grace. The one in whom both truth and grace can coexist together. Not a God who's all law and truth. Not a God who's all grace, but a God of both. I want to get a hold of that God. Not a God of my own conception, not a God of my own creation. And that means you got to cross the line of faith and say, I'm going to give up on my own constructions of God and I'm going to come to God as He's revealed Himself. Have you done that? Have you crossed the line of faith and said, I'm going to give up on my own stunty version of God as a body double, a stand-in, a stunt double. I'm going to worship Him as He's revealed Himself in His Son. Have you done that? If not, I'd love to visit with you about that this morning. At the close of our service, I'll be here in the back and I would love to talk with you about what it means to give up on your own version of God. To come to trust God as He revealed Himself in His Son. But second of all, not only do we worship the only God-licensed image of Himself, but for those of you who are Christians in the room this morning, I want to just call you to go hard after the true God to go hard after the God as He's revealed Himself, to cultivate proper thoughts of God. See, these commandments, these commandments are not only prohibit us from certain things, but they also imply there's positive things that we ought to pursue, right? So not only do we avoid having improper thoughts of God, but we cultivate proper thoughts of God, okay? That we get to know God deeper. We come to understand God more fully as we walk with Him. Listen, over the last 18, almost 18 years, I've come to know and discover more about my wife over the course of that time. She's come to know and discover more about me. Listen, on our wedding day, we thought we knew each other. How deceived can two individuals be? We thought we knew each other on our wedding day, right? But over the course of 18 years of life together, and I would imagine 18 years from now, if God gives us the grace to continue to live and love one another, that we will know more about each other then than we do today. Now, I've enjoyed that process. It's made me a better man. I can't speak for her. Don't know what she would say. 
but I, she's made me a better version of myself over the course of those 18 years. Still a long way to go, I know. But, listen, the wedding day was, we thought we knew each other. And for some of us, on our, the day of our conversion, when we come to faith in Christ, all of a sudden, the, our eyes are open to the beauties and glories of Christ. And, we're, and our hearts are enraptured and enthralled by Him. But listen, there is so much more to know of God that He's revealed Himself, of Himself in His Word. And yet, so many of us are content with what we have come to experience of God on our, upon our conversion rather than growing in our knowledge of Him and cultivating proper thoughts of Him over the course of years of walking with Him. Like when you reach your anniversary as a husband or a wife and you look back and say, I know so much more about my spouse today than I did five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Can you look back upon your new birth when you came to faith in Christ and say, I know so much more about my Savior than I did five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Because I've worked on cultivating. I've gone hard after the true God and cultivated proper thoughts of Him. I've, I've labored to do that. I've striven to do that. Let me ask you, what are you going hard after right now in life? Some of us are going hard after things like fitness, right? I'm right now training for other races. Going hard after fitness. We're going hard maybe after finances, right? Trying to clean up past mistakes and earn more income, have more discretionary finances, save, give, all those things. We're trying to get our finances in order. We're going hard after financial health and management. Maybe we're going hard after family, trying to become better parents trying to be a better spouse, husband, or wife. We're go- there are things in our life that we're going to have hard pr- promotions in our jobs and in our vocations. Let me ask you a question. Are you going hard after the true God by cultivating proper thoughts of Him? Not just avoiding improper ones, but cultivating proper ones. As a church, we want to help you do that. We want to help you do that. So after Easter, we're looking at rolling out some renew courses where we're going to be teaching through some key aspects of doctrine. All right, and so you'll hear more about those over the course of the coming weeks. But to help you cultivate proper understandings, proper thoughts of God. And listen, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If you're a, a member of this church, if this is where you have chosen to invest your life, make it a priority to be there. To be there. We're going to do everything we can to remove as many obstacles as we can from you being there. Make it a priority to be there. Right? Cultivate proper knowledge of God. Don't settle for where you are today. And it may not only come through classes. Maybe it comes through online. There's so many resources out there. Look, I would love to curate some of those for you because you, there's some things you probably don't need. It's like junk food. Okay? And some of the things is like poison. But... There's so many resources, books, articles to help you grow in a true understanding of God, right? To cultivate proper thoughts of Him so that you would not grow stagnant, complacent, and settle for what one poet, Wilbur Reese, called $3 worth of God. And I'll close with a little poem that he wrote back in the 1970s. He says this, he says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul, 
or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And I wonder how many of us in our Christian experience have settled for $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode our souls. Not enough to really bring change and transformation. But just enough to pacify. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, go hard after the true God. Open His Word daily. Daily, give yourself to reading of God's Word. Weekly, give yourself to meeting with God's people. And cultivate proper thoughts of Him. So don't, whether material or mentally, create images of the invisible God. And cultivate proper thoughts of Him. And give the honor and glory to His one and only licensed image of Himself, His Son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You did not leave us in the dark to fend for ourselves, to create for ourselves our own versions of who You are, of what You're like. But You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Son. And Father, I pray that we as your people, would not settle for $3 worth of you in our lives. For just enough to pacify us, for just enough to ease our, our, our sense of guilt, but we would go hard after you as you revealed yourself to be in your word. That we would come to know you. As we come to know you, we would honor you and cherish you more fully for all that you have done in our lives. And Father, for those who have not crossed the line of faith because they have, over the course of their lives, been coming to a God of a figment of their own imagination, unwilling to let go of how they conceive you to be, how they think that you should operate. I pray this morning, God, they would let go of their stunty God, their stand-in, that they have sought to replace you with. And they would step across the line of faith, trusting your son as you revealed yourself in him. Agreeing with you about sin in their lives rather than excusing it because of a grandfatherly figure that they've created. But also agreeing with you about your mercy. And... and, and <laughs> Refusing to believe that they, they, they are not worthy of it because they have an image of a warden who is looking to crack down on them rather than of a father who is ready to receive. Help us to know you as you are, as you've revealed yourself. Not as we think that you are or as we've been told that you are, but as you've revealed yourself to us in your son. And we have no other images of you but him. And may we enjoy you through him. We pray in Jesus' name.